Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Celebrate our God-given freedom and faith while honoring our Blessed Mother with Girelli's USA Rosary. Each state is represented on this rosary's 50 beads. Red, white, and blue enamel adorn its patriotic crucifix. Get yours today. Shop www.ghirelli.com. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. This is Setting the Record Straight on BirdBoxMedia.com. I'm Chuck Hoffman. This is part two of The Haunted Priest, this amazing book. The book is a beautiful witness of the life and sacrifice of a priest, Father Gerard, who risked his life to serve Catholics in the dangerously anti-Catholic Elizabethan England. It shows not only what Father Gerard endured to bring the sacraments to persecuting Catholics, but also what those Catholics suffered to keep the faith. For those hoping to understand something of what was happening in England during the time of the persecution of Catholics, this is a superb first-to-person account that is gripping but also readable. It is a depiction of the heroism, not only of this priest and so many like him, but the heroism of countless families who risked everything to house these hunted priests. This is a great book for people hoping to understand what was happening in England during the time of persecution. The persecution was by the crown, but then the royal line was interrupted when Cromwell took over as dictator, a Puritan dictator. Oliver Cromwell set out to continue the persecution of Catholics and wrap it up, but it seemed like he persecuted everybody. He required that everybody... Anglicans, Presbyterians, and Catholics attend the Anglican communion service every Sunday without fail, under penalty of jail or a huge fine, sometimes equivalent to a month's wages, sometimes to a year's wage. When I saw this book in a bookshop, I picked it up. I was stunned by the woodcut illustration on the cover. It showed a priest being tortured. The rather sensationalistic title put me off for a moment. Then I decided to take a look at it. And this is my habit. I sort of flip through a book and read sections at random. And I was stunned by this one. It immediately became apparent that the author was speaking in the first person, autobiographically, about things that happened to him with great authority and sort of a journalistic matter-of-factness. Just a man telling a story of his actual experiences of his own life. But it's a story about a period of history when Catholics were being persecuted by the British crown and then by Cromwell, the virtual dictator who was a Puritan. And the great injustice done to the Catholic Church and to Catholics. When they were discovered practicing their religion, the Catholics were murdered, tortured to death. In the most brutal, slow, and horrible ways the British crown could devise. But let's get back into the story. John Gerard has just been tortured 
His warder brought him back, feeling really sorry for the man. The warder laid a fire and brought Gerard some food. And we left off at the point where he lay down on his bed and rested quietly until the morning. In the morning after the gates of the tower were opened, my warder came up to say that Wade had arrived and that I had to go down to see him. I put on a cloak with wide sleeves. I could not get my swollen hands through the sleeves of my own gown, and I went down. When I entered the lieutenant's house, Wade said to me, I've been sent here in the name of the Queen and her secretary, Cecil. They say they know for certain that Father Gannett meddles in politics and is a danger to the state. And this the Queen asserts on the word of a sovereign and Cecil on his honor. Unless you choose to contradict them both, you must agree to hand him over. They cannot be speaking from experience, I answered, or from any reliable information they don't know the man. I've lived with him and know him well, and I can say for certain that he is not that kind of man. Come, said Wade, why not admit the truth and answer our questions? I cannot, I said, and I will not. It would be better for if you did. And saying this, he called out to a gentleman waiting in the next room. He was a well-built man whom Wade called Master of Torture. I knew that such an officer existed, but I found out later that this was not the man. He was Master of the Artillery. Wade gave him this title to terrorize me. By order of the Queen and Council, he addressed the gentleman. I hand this man over to him. You're to torture him twice today and twice every day until he confesses. The man took charge of me. Wade left in the same way as before we went to the torture chamber. The gauntlets were placed on the same parts of my arm as last time. They would not fit anywhere else because the flesh on either side had swollen into small mounds, leaving a furrow between and the gauntlets could only be fastened in the furrow. I felt a very sharp pain when they were put on. But God helped me, and I gladly offered him my hands and my heart. I was hung up in the same way as before, but now I felt a much severer pain in my hands, but less in my chest and belly. Possibly this was because I had eaten nothing that morning. I stayed like this and began to pray, sometimes aloud, sometimes to myself. And I put myself in the keeping of our Lord Jesus and his blessed mother. This time it was longer before I fainted, but when I did, they found it so difficult to bring me around, they thought that I was dead, or certainly dying, and summoned the lieutenant. I didn't know how long he had been there. I don't know how long he was there or how long I remained in a faint. But when I came to myself, I was no longer hanging, but sitting on a bench with men supporting me on either side. There were many people about, and my teeth had been forced open with a nail or with some iron instrument, and hot water had been poured down my throat. When the lieutenant saw that I could speak, he said, Don't you see how much better for you it would be if you submitted to the queen instead of dying like this? God helped me, and I was able to put more spirit into my answer than I had felt up to now. 
No, no, I don't, I said. I would prefer to die a thousand times, rather than do as they suggest. So you won't confess then? No, I won't, I said. And I won't as long as there's breath left in my body. Very well, then. We must hang you up now and a second time after dinner. He spoke as though he were sorry to have to carry out his orders. Iamus in nomine domine, I said. I have only one life, but if I had several, I would sacrifice them all for the same cause. I struggled to my feet and tried to walk over to the pillar, but I had to be helped. I was very weak now, and if I had any spirit left in me, it was given by God and given to me. Although most unworthy, because I shared the fellowship of the society, I was hung up again. The pain was intense now, but I felt great consolation of soul, which seemed to me to come from a desire of death. Whether it arose from a true love of suffering for Christ or from a selfish longing to be with Christ, God knows best. But I thought then that I was going to die. And my heart filled with great gladness as I abandoned myself to his will Oh, that God would grant me the same spirit always, though I'm sure that in his eyes it was far from a perfect spirit, for my life was to be longer than I then thought. And God gave me time to make it more perfect in his sight, so it seems. I was not then ready. Perhaps the governor of the tower realized he would gain nothing by torturing me any longer. Perhaps it was his Perhaps it was his dinner hour, or maybe he was moved, moved, or maybe he was moved with genuine pity for me. Whatever the reason, he ordered me to be taken down. It seemed that I had been hanging only an hour in the second period today. A gentleman told me that he had heard Sir Richard Berkeley, the same lieutenant, say that he had freely resigned his office because he no longer wished to be an instrument in such torture of innocent men. He did resign only three or four months after his appointment. His place was taken by another knight, and it was under him that I escaped. My warder brought me back to my room. His eyes seemed swollen with tears. He assured me that his wife, whom I had never seen, had wept and prayed for me all the time. He brought me some food. I could eat a little, and the little I did eat he had to cut up into small pieces for many days after I could not hold a knife in my hands. That day I could not even move my fingers or help myself in the smallest way. He had to do everything for me. But in spite of this, on orders from the authorities, he took away my knife, scissors, and razors. I thought they must be afraid that I would attempt suicide. But I later learned that they always do this in the tower when a prisoner is under warrant for torture. I expected to be taken again and tortured, as they threatened to do. But God knew the weakness of his soldier and gave him a short struggle, lest he be defeated. To others stronger than me, to Father Walpole, Father Southwell, and others, he offered a hard fight that they might conquer. These men, in a brief time, fulfilled a long space. But I was clearly unworthy of their prize, 
It was left to fulfill the length of my days, to make good my failings, to wash with many tears a soul which I had not counted fit to wash once and quickly with my blood. It was God's good pleasure, and what is good in his sight, be it done. So ends chapter 14, The Tower and the Torture. Let's go on a bit. Chapter 16, Clandestine Correspondence. Why the correspondence was clandestine was for the reason that Father Gerard was not allowed to exchange correspondence with the outside world, but he did. For the warder, who was very sympathetic to Father Gerard, was not adverse to exchanging innocent notes with the outside world. The warder did not suspect the rather personal nature of these letters, because he was completely illiterate. Had he known, he would have prevented it. But he didn't know. So Father Gerard took up an active correspondence with a number of his old friends outside of the prison. Listen with me again to the words of Father Gerard. Left to myself in my cell, I spent most of my time in prayer. Now, as in the first days of my imprisonment, I made the spiritual exercises. Each day I spent four or sometimes five hours in meditation. I also had my breviary with me every day, too. I rehearsed the actions of the Mass, as students do when they are preparing for ordination. I went through them with great devotion and longing to communicate, which I felt most keenly at those moments, when in a real Mass the priest consummates the sacrifice and consumes the oblata. At the end of three weeks, as near as I can remember, I was able to move my fingers and to hold a knife in my hand and help myself. When I had finished the spiritual exercises, I asked permission to have some books, but they allowed me only a Bible, which I got from my old prison. Then I asked for a little money, hoping to gradually bribe the warder to bring me secretly several things I wanted, even possibly some books. Thanks to my friends, everything I asked for reached me safely by his means. My sense of touch did not revive for five months, and then not completely, right up to the time of my escape, which was after six months. I always had a certain numbness in my fingers. The next four months passed quietly. By the end of the first month, I had received some books and began to study a little. During my confinement in the tower, I was allowed no visitors, and it was impossible, therefore, to deal directly with souls. I was able to do something, however, by correspondence, but only in the case of people I could trust, not to reveal my secret arrangements for writing and receiving letters. Chapter 17. Escape. October 4th, 1597. I tried my best to reconcile myself to God's will and accept all the restrictions imposed upon me. It was the last day of July and the feast of our Blessed Father. I was making my meditation, was hoping to have the opportunity of saying Mass again. When the thought suddenly came to me, I might be able to do it in the cell of a Catholic gentleman in the tower opposite me. There was only a garden between his cell and mine. He had been in prison there for ten years and lay under the sentence of death. But the sentence had not yet been carried out. Every day he used to go up onto the lead roof above his cell, where he was allowed to walk up and down for exercise. 
From there, he used to greet me and wait on his knees for my blessing. When I turned the idea over in my mind later, I thought it might be done if only the warder could be persuaded to let me go over. The gentleman's wife was allowed to visit him on fixed days and bring him clean linen and other things he needed. She carried them in a basket. And as she had now been doing this for years, the warders had got out of the way of examining its contents. With her help, I hope we might be able, little by little, to bring in everything we needed for Mass. My friends, of course, would supply them. I decided to try, so I signed to the gentleman to watch the gestures I was going to make. I dare not call to him, because it was a good distance across, and I might easily be overheard. He watched me as I took a pen and paper and pretended to write. Next, I placed the letter over the coal fire and held it up in my hands as though I was reading it. Then I wrapped one of my orange peel crosses in it, and it went through the motions of dispatching it to him. He seemed to follow what I was trying to indicate. The next step was to get the warder to, to take one of my crosses or rosaries to my good fellow prisoner. The same man had charge of us both. At first he refused, saying that he could not risk it, as he had no proof that the other man could be trusted to keep the secret. If the man said something to his wife, and it became known it would be all up with me, he said. Everything was collected, and the woman brought them in. When the evening arrived, I went across with my water and stayed with the gentleman all that night and the following day. According to the promise we made with the water, not a word was said to the gentleman's wife. That morning I said mass. I felt very great consolation, and I gave communion to the noble confessor of Christ, who had been so many years without discomfort. I also consecrated twenty-two hosts and placed them in the pyx with a corporal and brought them back with me to my own cell and renewed the divine banquet for many days afterward with fresh relish and delight. When I went across that evening, I had no thought of escape. I had only looked to the Lord Jesus, prefigured as our Redeemer, in the ash-baked loaf of Elias. To give me the strength and courage, I still needed to journey the rest of my hard way to the mountain of the Lord. But while we were passing the time of day together, it struck me how close this tower was to the moat, encircling the outer fortifications. And I thought it might be possible for a man to lower himself with a rope from the roof of the tower onto the wall beyond the moat. I asked the gentleman what he thought about it. Yes, it could be done easily, he said. If only we had some really good friends who were ready to run the risk of helping us. We have friends, all right, I said. If only the thing is practicable and really worth trying. As far as I'm concerned, he said, I'm all for attempting it. I'd be much happier if I could live in hiding with my friends and with the consolation of the sacraments and with pleasant companions instead of passing my days like a solitary between these four walls. Good, I said. Now we'll pray about it, and meanwhile I'll put the matter to my superior and do whatever he thinks best. For the rest of the time we were together, we discussed the details of the plan we would follow if we decided on the attempt. Then I asked John Lilly and Richard Fullwood, who was attending Father Garnett at the time, whether they were prepared to take the risk, and if they were to come on a certain night to the far side of the moat, opposite the squat tower I had described, they were to bring a rope with them and tie it to stake, 
we would be on the roof of the tower and throw them an iron ball attached to a stout thread, the kind used in stitching up bales. They must listen in the darkness for the sound of the ball touching the ground, find a cord, and tie it to the free end of the rope. This done, we would drop the rope by pulling the other end of the cord, which we held in our hands. I told them to pin a piece of white paper or a handkerchief on the front of their jackets, for we wanted to be sure of their identity before throwing the cord. Also, they were to bring a rowing boat so that we could make a quick getaway. The night came. I begged and bribed my water to let me visit my fellow prisoner. I walked across. The warder locked the pair of us in the cell, barred the door, as he always did, and went off. But he had also bolted the inside door, which gave on stairs leading up to the roof. And we had to cut away with a knife the stones holding the socket of the bolt. There was no other way out. At last we climbed silently up the stairs without a light. For a guard was posted every night in a garden at the foot of the wall. And when we spoke... It was in a faint whisper. At midnight, we saw the boat with our friends approaching. John Lilly, Richard Fullwood were there at the oars. And a third man sat at the tiller. He was my old warder in the clink, and he had obtained the boat for us. As they pulled in and got ready to land, a man came out from one of the poor dwelling places on the bank to do something. When he saw the boat draw up, he started talking to the men, thinking they were fishermen. He went back to bed. But the rescue party were afraid to land until the man had been given time to get to sleep again. So they paddled up and down. Time passed. It became too late to attempt anything that night. They rode back toward the bridge, but by now the tide had turned and was flowing strongly. It forced their little boat against the piles driven into the bed of the river to break the force of the water. It stuck, and it was impossible to move it forward or back. Meanwhile, the water was rising and was striking the boat, that with every wave it looked as if it would capsize, and the occupants be thrown into the river. They could only pray to God and shout for help. We were on top of the tower and heard the shouts. Men came out on top of the bank, and we were able to watch them in the light thrown by their candles. They rushed to their boats and pulled off to the rescue, Several boats came quite near, but they were afraid to pull alongside. The current was too strong. Forming a semicircle around them, they stayed like spectators, watching the poor men in their peril without daring to assist. Amid all the shouting, I recognized Richard Fullwood's voice. I know it, I said. It's our friends in danger. My companion would not believe I could pick out anyone's voice at such a distance, but I recognized it only too well and I was miserable at the thought that such devoted men were in danger for their lives for my sake. We prayed fervently for them, for though we had watched many people go out to help them, they were not saved yet. Then we saw a light lowered from the top of the bridge and a kind of basket at the end of the rope. If only they could get into it, they could be pulled up. However, God had regard to the peril of his servants, and at last a powerful seagoing craft came along with six sailors aboard, and hazardly drawing up to the craft in danger, pulled on deck, Lily and Fullwood. Then immediately the small boat capsized before the third man could be rescued, as though it had only been kept afloat for the sake of the Catholics it carried. 
However, by the mercy of God, the man who was washed over into the river was able to grasp the rope let down from the bridge, and he was hauled to safety. So all were rescued and got back to their homes. The page of this book has a footnote that this was the famous old London Bridge opened in 1209. It was 926 feet long and had 19 arches buttressed by great piers, which obstructed the flow of the rivers. The existence of waterworks added to the hazards of the passage. There was a saying that wise men go over the bridge, fools under it. The present bridge, which replaced it in 1831, was built 60 yards west of the old bridge. The next day, John Lilly sent me a letter as usual, through the water. I might reasonably have expected him to say something like this. Now we know, and our peril last night has taught us, God does not want us to go ahead with the escape. But quite the contrary, the letter began. It was not God's design that we should succeed last night, but he mercifully snatched us from our peril. He has only postponed the day. With God's help, we will be back tonight. Determination like this in the man's devout sentiments reassured my companion. He felt certain we would succeed, but I had great difficulty in giving leave of the warder to stay a second night out of my cell, and we were very much afraid he might notice the loosened stone when he came to bolt the door that evening. However, he did not see it. At the right time, we went up into the tower. The boat came along, no one interfered, and it pulled in safely to the bank. The schismatics stayed in the boat. The two Catholics got out with the rope. It was a new one, as they had thrown the old one into the river when they ran into trouble the previous night. Following my instructions, they fastened it to a stake and then listened for the sound of the iron ball we threw down to them. It was found without difficulty, and the cord fastened to the end of the rope. But it proved very difficult indeed to pull up. It was a good deal thicker and doubled. This was Father Garnet's instruction to guard against one rope snapping under the weight of my body, but actually he had increased the hazards. Now a fresh difficulty arose which we had not foreseen. The distance between the tower at one end and the stake at the other was very great, and the rope, instead of sloping down, stretched almost horizontally between the two points. We had therefore to descend by working our way along the rope. It was impossible to slide down with our own weight, and this we discovered by making up a bundle of books and other things, which we wrapped in my cloak and placed on the double rope to see whether it would go down of its own accord. It didn't. Fortunately, it stuck before it got out of our reach, for if it had gone beyond recovery, we would have never gotten down ourselves. We hauled the bundle back and left it behind. My companion now changed his mind. He had always said it would be the simplest thing in the world to slide down. Now he saw the hazards of it. But I shall certainly be hanged if I remain here, he said. If we throw the rope back now, it will fall into the moat, and the splash will betray us and our friends as well. I'll go down, and God help me. I'd rather take a chance of escape than stay locked up here with no chance at all. So he said a prayer and took hold of the rope. He got down fairly easily, for he had plenty of strength, and the rope was still taut but his descent slackened the rope and made it much more difficult for me. I only noticed this when I started to descend. 
I commended myself to God and our Lord Jesus and to the Blessed Virgin, my guardian angel, and especially to Father Southwell, who was in prison near here until he was taken out to martyrdom, and to Father Walpole and to all our martyrs. Then I gripped the rope with my right hand and took it in my left. To prevent myself falling, I twisted my legs round the rope, leaving it free to slide between my shins. I had gone three or four yards face downwards, when suddenly my body swung round with its own weight, and I nearly fell. I was still very weak, with the slack rope and my body hanging underneath. I could make practically no progress. Next, I managed to work myself as far as the middle of the rope, and there I stuck. My strength was failing, and my breath, which was short before I started, seemed altogether spent. At last, with the help of the saints, and I think by the power of my friends' prayers down below drawing me, I moved along a little way, and then I stuck again. Now I thought I will never be able to get down, but I was determined not to fall into the moat as long as I was still able to hold my legs and arms as well as I could. I managed, thank God, to get as far as the wall on the far side of the moat, but my feet just touched the top of the wall and the rest of my body hung horizontally behind, with my head no higher than my legs. The rope had become so slack. I don't know how I could have gotten over the wall if it had not been for John Lilly. Somehow or other, he could never say how he did it. He got up onto the wall, seized hold of my feet, and pulled me over, and put me safely down on the ground. I could not stand upright. I was so weak. So they gave me cordial waters and restoratives, which they had taken care to bring with them, and I was able to reach the boat. Before getting in, they untied the rope from the stake and cut off part of it and let the rest hang down against the wall of the tower. Our first plan had been to pull it away altogether, and we had accordingly passed it round a big gun on the roof without knotting it. But providentially, we could not dug it loose. Had we done so, it would have almost certainly have dropped into the moat with a big splash, and we would have been in trouble. We stepped into the boat and thanked God, who had snatched us from the hands of our persecutors and from all the expectations of the Protestant people. We also thanked the men who had done so much and undergone such risks for us. We rowed a good distance before we brought the boat to land. Then I sent my fellow prisoners with John Lilly, to my house, where Mistress Lyne, that saintly widow, was in charge while I took Richard Fullwood and went with him to Father Garnett's house. It was on the outskirts of the city, and horses were there ready for us. Little John, Father Garnett's servant, was holding them, and before dawn broke, Little John and I were in the saddle. Father Garnett was in the country at the time. We rode straight to his place and had dinner with him. The rejoicing was great. We all thank God that I had escaped from the hands of my enemies in the name of the Lord. Meanwhile, I had sent Richard Fullwood to a place we had decided on beforehand where he was to hold a horse and be ready to fly with my warder if the man was prepared to make off at once. As I said, I had written a letter to be delivered to the warder when he came for his usual morning meeting with John Lilly. But it was not Lily who came that morning. I had ordered him not to stir out of the doors until the storm that was to be expected had blown over. 
In his place, I chose another messenger whom the warder knew. He was surprised, of course, to find another man, but he said nothing just as he was turning back. As he thought to deliver the letter in his usual way, the messenger seized hold of him. The letter is for you. No, not for anyone else, he said. For me who sent it, a friend replied the other man. But I don't know who he is. The warder was dumbfounded. But I can't read. If it's urgent, please read it for me. The man read the letter he had brought. In it, I informed the warder that I had escaped from prison. In order to put his mind at rest, briefly explained why I had done so. Then I pointed out, though I had no obligation in the matter, I had merely made use of my rights, yet I would see to his safety. He had always been faithful in his trusts, and I would stand by him now. If he wanted to save his skin, I had a man ready with a horse to take him to a safe place, a good distance out of London. I would give him two hundred florins a year, and he could lead a decent life. But I added this condition. If he accepted the offer, he must settle his affairs in the tower quickly, and go off at once to the place to which the messenger would lead him. He was on his way back to the tower to settle his business and see his wife safely away when a fellow warder ran into him. Off with you as fast as you can make it, he said. Your prisoners have escaped from the small tower. The lieutenant is searching the place for you. If he catches you, God help you. Shaking all over, the man rushed back to the messenger. He begged him for the love of God to take him to the place where the horses were waiting. The messenger took him and found Richard Fullwood waiting with two horses. He rode off and Richard took him to the house of one of my friends about a hundred miles from London. Already I had sent a letter asking this gentleman whether he would be so kind as to put up the warder and look after him should he come in. But I warned him not to confide in him or let him know that he knew me. Richard Fullwood, I said, would reimburse him for all his expenses. If the warder wanted to talk about me or about his own affairs, he should refuse to listen. All went off as I planned. My friend was not troubled, and the warder was safely away in his house. After a year, he moved away into another country. There he became a Catholic and lived comfortably with his family on the annuity, which I sent him regularly, according to my promise. And there, too, he died after four or five years. By this flight for dear life, God had snatched him from the temptation of sin, and I trust given him a place in heaven. While imprisoned, I had probed frequently on his faith. His mind was made up, but I could not work on his will. My escape from prison was, I hope, in God's kind disposing, the occasion of his escaping from hell. When the lieutenant discovered that his prisoners and their warder had made off, he went to the council, taking with him the letters I'd left behind. The lords of the council were amazed at the way I had escaped. One of them, a leading counselor, said to a gentleman in attendance, as I was told afterward, that he was glad I had gotten away. The lieutenant asked for authorization to search the whole of London and any place suspected, but the others told him it would be of no use. You can't hope to find him, they said. If he has friends who are prepared to do all this for him, you can count on it. They will have no difficulty in finding him horses and a hiding place and keeping him well out of your reach. A search was made in one or two places. 
as far as I could discover, nobody of note was taken. And that was the escape of Father John Gerard. He was to live a long life up into his 70s. And his superior ordered him to write this book to inspire others. I'm turning to the final paragraph in this book in which the good priest writes, God grant that I may always love and dutifully carry the cross of Christ and walk worthily of the vocation to which I'm called. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and this shall I always ask, that I may live in the house of God all my days. Yes, till I prove myself grateful for the favors I have received. Hitherto I have been a sterile plant. I pray that at last I may begin to bear some fruit by virtue of the olive tree to which I have been grafted. This book contains a kind of austere dark beauty and a kind of radiance about the great devotion and love for God and for Christ that burns so brightly in the soul of Père Jean Gerard, Father John Gerard. It's a story of a faith of an immense magnitude and power that is so typical of our beloved Catholic Church. I'm Chuck Coughlin, hoping to set the record straight on breadboxmedia.com. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. I'd like to invite you to join me for a pilgrimage tour to France this September. It's based on my book, St. Benedict and St. Therese, The Little Rule and the Little Way. I'll be teaching about the spiritualities and the lives of these two great saints, and we'll be visiting the great monastery of Fleury, where St. Benedict's relics are venerated, and of course going to Lisieux to visit the childhood home of St. Therese, the Carmel where she was a nun, and the great basilica dedicated to her honor. But there's more than that. At Paris, we'll be visiting the Basilica of Sacré-Cœur, Rue de Bac with the Miraculous Medal, going on to Vézelay, Nevers with St. Bernadette, Paris-le-Monial, where the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus was given to St. Margaret Mary, and then Chartres Cathedral, Mont-Saint-Michel, the Normandy beaches, and more. I think there's not only going to be time for instruction and learning, but also prayer and worship, celebrating Mass in the various locations, and also time for fellowship and a good bit of French food and wine, too. Come and join us this September. If you'd like to know more, go to catholicheritagetours.com. That's catholicheritagetours.com, or be in touch with me through my website, twightlongenecker.com. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough Vehicle at caneford.com.